According to him, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. And uh, we're still, I'm going to spend a second class now reviewing the Kenosis hymn from Philippians 2, uh, 5 specifically. We did this on Wednesday and didn't get quite as far as I thought we would get and uh, realized it'd be useful if we took a second session to, uh, to review the, the kenosis. It's one of the fundamental blessings of the New Testament to understand how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to understand how God humbled himself and became the God-man when the, the second member of Trinity actually uh, was birthed by the Virgin and came into this world and became our Savior. And so these blessings then uh, are, I think, vital for us to uh, hold on to and to understand for what they are. Philippians 2.5 is an imperative to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So to think the way Jesus thunk. And uh, if, he, if that's the way that he thought, that's the way we're supposed to think. And it's the thinking of humility regarding the other is more important than yourself. Uh, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. And that's where we ran out of time and what I want to pick up with here this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father for His faithfulness to teach us the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon Your faithfulness this morning to open our eyes, to teach us, to feed us, we recognize, Father, that the Word of God is not earthly material. It is a spiritual endeavor. And apart from your Holy Spirit, Father, none of us would have any opportunity to learn these things. So we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit, to take infinite truth and teach it to our finite understanding. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so, um, again, I would just highlight, I did this the other night, and it's useful to do it again. Uh, opening up the church website and showing when you go to austinbiblechurch.com and you can bring up uh, any of the studies that we're currently doing or any of the former studies that we have concluded. Uh, right now Philippians is still a current study and you can just select Philippians there. And when you do that, uh, all of the MP3s are going to uh, show up there in the most recent one first in the, in the reverse order. So the most recent one will be at the top. You can then use the menu on the right to really drill down. And that's kind of what I'm doing here in terms of the review, going chapter by chapter and drilling down to the sections as we taught them. And so in the chapter 2 section, as you click each of those links, the uh, the MP3 list will also be adjusted. So uh, when I selected the chapter 2 list, I have only the chapter 2 MP3s that are listed there. And then they have further breakdowns as well. You'll notice verses uh, 1 and 2, verses uh, uh, 3 through 11, verses 12 through 18, verses 19 through 30. Those are the sections that you have over here. Those are the sections that match the outlines that we taught. Uh, and so uh, presently, of course, we're in the, the kenosis passage here in verses 3 through 11. Uh, so again, when you select that, it's going to drill down again. Your, your, verse, your uh, MP3 list will be adjusted. And there they are, uh, class 81 through 93. Those are the classes that we taught, the 13 classes that we taught in this paragraph. So if you want more material than what we're getting here in just this review, remember basically we're done. The Philippian series is complete. We're just using a few classes uh, to review and to reinforce what we have previously studied. And so what I'm attempting to do is, if I can, uh, kind of give one class per segment and so I gave one class on verses 1 and 2. Uh, I, I wanted to move on and do another class on verses 12 through 18, another class on verses 19 uh, through 30. But it just seems like this kenosis passage was too much to try to do in a single class of review. And so I'll use this hour as well to, uh, to wrap that up. All right. 
And so uh, as we look at it here, have this attitude in yourselves. Think what Christ thought. That's the imperative. The verb is a verb of thinking, and it's telling, the Bible's telling us how to think. We are to think the way that Jesus Christ thunk, the, to think the way he thunk, to think uh, with the thinking of Jesus Christ, which is a humility thinking, and we can appreciate that. All right, now I'm going to skip ahead so that I don't get lost in what we did on Wednesday. Let's just go there. All right. It's called the Kenosis Hymn. And I believe it was originally a hymn. Either Paul wrote it himself or he adapted a hymn that another Christian wrote. But we have a hymn and it's, it's lyrical. It's, it's in, a, in a poetic meter that could be sung uh, by, uh, by ancient Greek speakers in uh, going through the text. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed, or he who, it's a hymn that begins with a he who, he who existed in the form of God, do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is what sets him apart. This is what contrasts him with Satan, for example. Because you remember, if you read in Isaiah 14, when Satan fell, he had five I wills that he uttered there. Every one of them was boastful. Every one of them was arrogant. Every one of them was self-promoting about how he wanted a higher throne. He wanted a greater position. He wanted more power. He even said, I will be like the most high God. And so here's a creature who vows to become God. Say, how insane is that? But here's God who humbles himself to take the form of a creature. Here's God who humbles himself when the Word becomes flesh, when God the Son, as the God-man, walks this earth in his earthly ministry in the first advent incarnation. And so that's the example. He existed in the form of God. He already had what Satan was lusting after, but he let it go. He humbled himself when he took upon himself the form of a man. And so we have this creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. He existed in the form of God. This is the thing. This is unique in all of human history. There is no other human being that existed before they were born. So think back to your birthday. That's when you began to exist, all right? Or nine months prior when you were conceived, all right? But you did not exist. Your soul did not exist before conception. That's a, that's a bad doctrine. It's not biblical. It, it's New Age or it's, it's uh, Hindu or some other kind of thing with the, pre, the idea of pre-existent souls is not biblical. We are birthed uh, and our soul is, is procreated along with our body, procreated as body, soul, and human spirit in, uh, in that view. Jesus is unique. Jesus is the only human being that preceded his, his birth in the manger because, of course, he is God the Son. And, and he has always been with God the Father and always been with God the Holy Spirit. And so these are the passages here that make that clear in John chapter 1, John chapter 8, John 17, 5, where he existed with God and had a glory before the world was. And also Micah 5, 2. In Micah 5, 2, where you have the prophecy of the birth in Bethlehem, you have the recognition that even though he's born in Bethlehem, that's not the beginning of the story that his goings forth were from eternity past. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. And so Bethlehem is his prophesied birthplace. And Micah gave this six centuries before uh, the, the, the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, uh, just as he was prophesied. But even though Bethlehem was where he was born, Bethlehem's not where he originated. For his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And the actual uh, inception of his human nature, the actual alpha moment in which God the Son obtained a human nature, that is the, uh, much older than the manger of, uh, of Bethlehem in 6 BC or 4 BC or whatever year you, you like to date the, uh, the birth of Christ. So he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be raptured, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be uh, snatched and grabbed and, and, uh, and claimed for oneself. The same word we use for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the same word that we have here, that uh, deity is not something you can just grab for yourself as, uh, as Satan vowed that he would. But he emptied himself. 
he emptied himself. All right, and this is where we have to understand the language because the verb kanao is pretty easy just as, as it stands. We know what it means to empty a bucket. We know what it means to empty a, a coffee cup. How do you empty a person? Okay, well, let's see. Hmm. That gets us into some strange things we might illustrate. I'm not going to go there, but all right, how do I empty a person? And we want to understand, and, I, and to me, I think the best, uh, as this passage describes and other passages describe, I like to render it, he laid aside his privileges, that he couldn't stop being God, but he could stop acting as God. He could stop functioning in his deity. And so he puts, can't stop being God because God's immutable, right? God doesn't change. So he can't stop being God, but he can sovereignly choose in the exercise of his sovereign omnipotence, he can sovereignly choose to limit his, his bodily operations to only human capacity. And, and never once does he use any omni-attribute, any divine power. When he does a miracle, that's because the Holy Spirit is upon him and he's functioning as an Old Testament prophet. It's not because he's acting as God. He never once acts as God. And that's huge. Because he, has to, he can't do that and still save us. If he's going to identify with us, that means he can't cheat and do God stuff that we can't do, right? Uh, He has to identify with us being completely dependent upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit the way we're completely dependent upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that becomes an important principle as well. Any conclusion regarding Jesus self-emptying, and and you'll read some bad definitions out there on kenosis, Um, any conclusion regarding Jesus self-emptying, cannot violate immutability, cannot violate any attribute of deity. He didn't stop being God and then resume being God again after the resurrection. He was God the whole time. And uh, if if you're going to try to teach a doctrine of kenosis that has God stop being God, that's a problem, okay? That's not a biblical doctrine. And you just, it's just a a non-starter at that point. All right. Now, where we ran out of time and what I want to pick up here today, um, we've got a verb, okay? And it's going to be a little grammatical, so forgive me. There's going to, we have a verb. That verb is an aorist. It's and as an aorist active verb for emptying. It says he emptied himself. And then it's followed by three straight participles, okay? So uh, we could do the same thing in English where we could say, Pastor Bob taught a class illustrating explaining and blessing the congregation. All right? Does that make sense? Because So the first statement, Pastor Bob taught a class, that's your finite verb. The participles that came after, illustrating, explaining, and blessing the congregation, those participles that come after, they're describing the process. They're defining how it happened. They're kind of overall descriptive of what the main verb was. So here in verse 5, the main, uh, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, 7, emptied himself, that's the main verb. And then it's followed by these statements, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. Those three statements, that's what we want to work our way through here this morning. And to be really technical about it, if you're going to be a beginning Greek student and start learning your participles, uh, this is a marvelous chance to learn an active participle, to learn a middle participle, and to learn a passive participle. Because <laughs> you got them all. You got the active voice, the middle voice, and the passive voice all right here. And uh, how fun is that? All right. So in the active voice, he uh, was uh, uh, emptied himself taking taking the form of a bondservant. In the active voice, you do the activity. Jesus Christ did the taking. He took that form. In the middle voice, you both do the action and receive the benefit of the action. And so taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. That's in the middle voice. That's kind of blends both active and passive concepts. That's you're actively doing it, but you're also receiving the effects or experiencing the effects. And then in the passive voice, being found, being found. The neat thing about passive verbs is you don't do them. They get done to you. (laughs) All right. So if you are being found, 
uh, what do you have to do to be found? Nothing, essentially. Uh, it, it happens to you, okay? The one thing you do, although I say nothing, you actually cannot take an active step to hinder it. Passive imperatives are, are such that you have to volitionally let it happen. And, uh, and sometimes that's a challenge. Sometimes when God wants you to, to let something happen, like be filled with the Spirit, well, be filled with the Spirit's a passive. So how do I, how do I obey that? Well, don't hinder it. Don't, uh, don't uh, pursue prolonged carnality. Don't, don't hinder the filling of the Holy Spirit. That will happen if you don't hinder it. Okay? Anyway, so we have active, middle, and passive voice. All right. But now these three participles, and, th- and now we have a question. And I think uh, it's worth asking with respect to this question. And we go through these taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. And a lot of detail that goes into this. But as we conceptualize this, I think it's useful for us to ask ourselves, is is this a repetition of the same thing three times over? And it could be. Grammatically, it could be. And that's, that's very valid. Uh, in, in the example I gave earlier, Pastor Bob taught a class illustrating, explaining, and blessing, right? And yet it was the same class. It was the same event, it was the same hour, it was the same time together with the flock, uh, and yet there were three different activities that happened over the course of or simultaneously with teaching that class. So it could be simultaneous, it could be the same thing. In other words, all three of these statements could just simply be uh, different ways of saying the Word became flesh, that God became a man. And you could understand it on that basis. And that is probably the most common way the commentaries will handle it, the most theologians will approach it, is that all three of these participles are synonymous. They're effectively saying the same thing over and over. So if and I put in here it's not certain and I actually don't agree with it. But if all three participles are equivalent statements, then all three phases celebrate how the Word became flesh. In a sense, we have all three of these participles telling us that the, the, the God-man received a body. And that, that receiving a body, He walked this earth in that body. That all three of these are statements of the Incarnation. Okay? In which case, then, there is no reference to his pre-incarnate begotten humanity. If, if we take these all as synonymous, simultaneous events. Now, what if, and this is possible, and I've actually concluded this is how I understand it, if these three participles are not equivalent statements, then these three phrases can communicate a progression of events. In other words, a step-by-step delineation of how it is that he emptied himself and the process by which that emptying was uh, progressively unfolded. And uh, in the, the example I'm, I'm giving with respect to Pastor Bob taught a class, uh, illustrating is not the same as explaining. In fact, sometimes illustrations make it worse. Okay, Illustrating is not the same as explaining. Uh, blessing we're using different terms that are related but not purely synonymous. All right. So if we're going to understand it this way, then can we see a sequence here? So taking the, the morphe dulu, the form of a servant, that actually could be a reference to God the Son's active acceptance of God the Father's begotten humanity because He's the one who took it. He is the one that took it. The Father begat it, but the Son took it. The Son took it. Let's look at Proverbs 8 real quickly. Proverbs 8, verse 23 and following. And there are um, MP3s on the website for this chapter as well. We have an ongoing Proverbs series. In Proverbs 8, we spent many hours working through this. Really, it's verses 22 and following. So the Lord possessed me, the Lord acquired me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. From everlasting I was established. 
from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. This is an in the beginning that's earlier than the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. This is in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is going back to the John 1-1 beginning, which is before the Genesis 1-1 beginning. So when there was no... Verse 24 says, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. I was birthed. The verb there is a birthing verb. When When there were no depths, I was birthed. That tells you this is older than Genesis. Because when you're reading Genesis, you know, there, the, there was, uh, the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was brooding over the, the surface of the deep. Remember that? Well, this verse says before that, when there were no depths, when there were no depths for the Spirit of God to be brooding over, when there were no depths, I was birthed. This is why His going forth is from everlasting as we saw in Micah 5.3, as we see here, as we see elsewhere. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was birthed, brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and the fields or the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But before both of those, he was there and he was birthed prior to that. So when we talk about hypostatic union, we talk about the birthing of the humanity of Christ. That's a lot older than a manger in Bethlehem. Okay? Because we're talking about not his body, the birthing of his human spirit, the birthing of his humanity from the foundation of the world. So when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, see, he was there. When he set forth uh, for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him. Not only was he there, look what he was doing. I was beside him as a master workman. See, the father was the architect, the son was the carpenter. The son was the builder who built the whole universe in obedience to God the Father's plan. I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Playing. The word is a word for playing. Okay? Sometimes it's used of uh, of a man and a woman with marital playing. Okay? Sometimes it's used of children playing. This is, you know, a, a loving father that's looking upon his child. And his child is playing with little building blocks and he makes a big thing and builds it up real high and the father's so proud. Well, for God the Father, for God the Son, the Son was playing and the result was the heavens and the earth in obedience to the Father. Everything the Father designed, the Son created. I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of man. Humanity was the pinnacle of the Father's design. Not angels. Humanity. All right. And so, as we define uh, Alpha to Omega, as we define the, uh, the spectrum of these things, time is just the, the present. Time is the created dimension of time in between eternity past, eternity future. And that Alpha moment that begins time is the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's when he receives his human nature. The Father begets it, the Son takes it. The Son takes it. All right. Being made. Being made, that is becoming, in a middle voice. Homoioma anthropon would reference the God-man's incarnation in the Virgin Mary's conception. Again, if we're going to take these as a process, then the first step of humbling himself, the first step uh, along this road is actually the acquisition of a human spirit. Then it's the acquisition of a human body. So being made in the uh, likeness of men, homoioma anthropon, would reference the God-man's incarnation at the Virgin Mary's conception. And this is when Angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Behold, the power of the Most High will overshadow you and, uh, and you will conceive. Mary wanted to know, how can I conceive if I'm a virgin? 
how can how can any virgin be pregnant? By definition, uh, in normal normal human operations, uh, it, when 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 a woman becomes pregnant, she's not a virgin anymore. All right. But God says, no, this is going to happen. There won't be a man in this picture because God's power is going to make this happen. So in the active voice, he takes the form. In the middle voice, he's made in the likeness, being made in the likeness. And so this could be then a reference to the God-man's incarnation at the Virgin Mary's conception. But then being found, being found, passive voice. Being found, schemati hos anthropos, being found. The third step, his actual birth and uh, incarnation, his walk on this earth. Being found, schemati hos anthropos, in the appearance as a man, referencing the virgin-born life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was on display, he was he had to be found. He had to be seen, believed on in the world, proclaimed by angels, taken up in glory. The, the fact is that he walked this walk so that he would be observed. He would be found. All right. And so you can view these participles, in which case then the, um, the actual completion of this emptiness, the, the completion of the kenosis activity by which he emptied himself. First of all, he took the, the human nature, then he accepted the human body, and then he entered into his earthly ministry, submitting to the will of the Father, being found, see, which you can probably date with the uh, baptism event at the River Jordan, because he was given uh, time to grow up. He was given a childhood in obscurity. He was given some privacy in which to learn the Word of God and grow and enter into his ministry as an adult male instead of as a, you know, a 12-year-old boy in the temple. And so he was given obscurity prior to that, that baptism moment. But when he comes to John the Baptist to get baptized, and when the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and when the voice of the Father from heaven says, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that uh, that then begins the kenosis life ever after, whereby in, in total humility he is obedient to the Father's will. In total humility he is, he is operating on, on that basis. On that basis. All right. So again, that's a lot to unpack out of uh, verses 7 and 8. But he did empty himself, and these three participles describe it, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now he humbled himself, is another finite verb, and this now follows the emptied himself. He emptied himself, he humbled himself. He humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so now he humbles himself. Having emptied himself, he now humbles himself. And what a blessing. Um, And it's for this reason that God also highly exalts him. We have the whole pattern of the Bible illustrated in the person of Jesus Christ. Self-humbling. Humbled himself. Have you ever been humbled? We all have, okay? Okay. I'm glad I got a room full of human beings here this morning. Of course. Uh, it's called life. Other people will always humble you. When you're a child, it's your parents that will humble you, and they need to, because that's called discipline and child training. But then uh, other you know, school teachers will humble you, and, and employers will humble you, and, and all kinds of people will humble you your whole life. And uh, just got to deal with it, learn how to deal with it. So external humbling is, is one thing. What about internal humbling? What about your personal reflexive humbling? When you humble yourself, it's an exercise of subjection to the will of God. It's an exercise in recognition that I'm not the center of the universe. I want to be. My my carnality wants to be. My sin nature thinks it is. But I know know I'm not. I know that that God the Father is magnifying Jesus Christ. And so I need to humble myself. He humbled himself. And he was the celebrity of the universe. He humbled himself 
And that's the pattern for all of us to then follow. So self-humbling. It's an active verb with a reflexive pronoun. And I realize maybe sometimes it's fun to humble other people. Okay? And you get a little carnal thrill out of it maybe. I don't know. But Sometimes you gain no pleasure when, yeah, I know as a parent you have to humble your children and you shouldn't delight in that, but you want to do that because it's for their good. All right. So humbling others is certainly more pleasant than humbling yourself. But we're called to humble ourselves. An active verb with a reflexive pronoun. Tapenao is to humble, to get along with humble means. Actually, we have this verse coming back in chapter 4 when Paul says he knows how to be in prosperity, he knows how to be in humility because you can be financially humble when you're struggling with the, uh, the bank account. All right. And of course, this is what we're called to do. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. That's the whole plan of God right there in a nutshell. And one that I think too many Christians ignore because they want to magnify themselves. They want to exalt themselves. And God says, no, 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 no. He says, I'll take care of that in the proper time. And that's not now proper time is in glory when you no longer have a sin nature, when you're resurrected, when you can handle the exaltation. Because right now, few of us can. Right now, the the prosperity test blows most of us up. Solomon and all the rest. The the prosperity test is a tough test to go through and very few survive it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. If all you want to do is just promote yourself constantly then you're not an imitator of Jesus Christ. You're an imitator of Satan. Right? Because he was exalting himself. Well, if you exalt yourself, you'll be cast down. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That's how it works. That's how the Father designed it. And so we have these, uh, these passages here. Um, Matthew 18. I think this is pretty uh, straightforward. And um, the disciples come to Jesus and they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Why are you even asking that question? And they, they clearly had an agenda. Some of them thought that uh, they must be on that list. So he calls a child to himself and says, look at this kid. Okay. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You've got to humble yourself. If you can't humble yourself, you have no eternal exaltation on the way. If you can't humble yourself, then get ready for some external humbling because the Father knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Matthew 23 and verse 12. And uh, again... See, and the Pharisees are a good example of this, people that can't humble themselves because they're all about outdoing one another. And they love the accolades, they love the esteem. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. That's Matthew 23, 11. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. If you can't do the self-humbling activity, God will do it to you. You will be humbled. That external humbling, God will do it. And he's very good at it. He's qualified, he's well rehearsed. He knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar had to spend seven years eating grass, acting like an animal, thinking like an animal until he got humbled to learn that uh, that's what it's all about. Of course, Philippians 2.8, what we're looking at this morning, Philippians 4.12, I know how to get along in humble means. James 4.10, James and 1 Peter, Very similar. Verse 6 says, um, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, wh- why, why are you so resistant to the idea of self-humbling? The, the better you do at it, the more grace that's on, on the way. He gives grace to the humble, and He's opposed to the proud. Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is so practical. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. 
So there you have it, self-humbling. And we have the example of Jesus. What a great pattern to follow. 1 Peter 5, 6. We have uh, elders that are commanded to shepherd and not lord it over their flocks, but to do so voluntarily. Uh, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's 1 Peter 5, 2. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. <laughs> lording it, I tell you. There's only one Lord and it's not you, so go ahead and humble yourself and don't lord it over others. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Pretty straightforward. I think these verses preach themselves. All right, so he humbled himself. Descriptions of how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the idea here, too, is that I think obedience is, is okay for a little while. Obedience is easier for the shorter you're expected to stay obedient. Obedience gets harder the longer and longer you're supposed to stay obedient. Obedience gets really hard when it includes suffering and, and difficulty, even to the point of death. So at what point do you draw the line? What, what, you just draw a line in the sand and say, that's, that's enough. Okay, am I not humble enough? Have I not obeyed enough? What more do you want? And we, we get to a point where we just kind of say, okay, that, that's enough now. I've done enough. And for Jesus, there was never that point where he drew the line in the sand. He thought about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he really, really thought about it. And he wanted to know, could there be a different thing to do here? Could, we, could there be a plan B? Could there be... If possible, can this cup pass me by? But then he stopped himself and said, no, wait a minute. Even death on a cross. And so the progression, I love the progression. This verse is, is really, uh, like I say, it's a hymn. There's a cadence. There's a, there's a meter. If, you, if you're a songwriter or a musician, you understand you've got to have rhythm and you've got to have meter and you've got to have all that other stuff I don't know about. But I, I hear about it. Doug tells me about it. People with talent impress me, all right? And, and this, the progression of this verse where it goes on and on and on. So he, uh, being found in appearance as a man, so then it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It just goes and goes and goes and Jesus never draws a line. He never stops it. And that's our pattern. That's what we're to emulate. And so for this reason also, God highly exalted him. For this reason also. Make sure I'm not missing my points here on this. Self-humbling is accomplished through prolonged obedience that never draws a line, never crosses lines that others might draw. Be faithful unto death, we're told. Obedience learned through suffering is the perfection process for humanity. That's the perfection process, and he submitted to it. He was sinless, he was perfect, but then the perfect was perfected, perfected through sufferings. And we're learning about that in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Obedience learned through suffering. We've got to learn the same way. We learn through the things that we suffer. even death on a cross. He accepted a substitutionary sacrificial death, accepting the curse of sin, the curse of the law, and the infinite wrath of God for all the joy set before him. Even death on a cross. And you and I, what are we commanded to do? Take up our cross and follow him. The example is set for us to emulate. Even death on a cross. Jesus accepted a substitutionary sacrificial death. It was not for his own sake. It was substitutionary. He didn't die on the cross for his sins. He didn't have any. 
He died on the cross for our sins. We're the sinners. He didn't become a curse because he was in violation of Mosaic law. Israel was in violation of Mosaic law. So he became a curse on their behalf to redeem them from the law so that he could give them the new covenant in replace of the Mosaic covenant. He was substitutionary uh, as as the last Adam to redeem us from Adam's original sin or Adam's curse. And he was substitutionary as the prophet like unto Moses that he could become the curse to redeem them from the law of Moses, give them then the new covenant. Both aspects of his substitutionary death are significant. We want to recognize them for what they are. We're studying that right now in the book of Hebrews actually related to that. A substitutionary death. It was not his sins, it was our sins. So Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, not just the author of faith, the author and perfecter of faith. Because he himself was perfected, he's now perfecting all of us. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was not on that cross for his own sake. He didn't need the cross to ascend to the Father and stand before the Father in perfect glory. He had that from the beginning. But without the cross, he can't bring us to glory. In order to bring many sons to glory, he has to be our substitute. He has to take our place. He has to satisfy the wrath of God. So we see that for what it is too. Isaiah 53 you have any Jewish friends? This is a text for them. It's in their Bible and they don't even know it. It's in their Bible and they don't, it's never been taught. They don't learn this in Hebrew school. They don't learn this in their synagogues. They don't learn this uh, anywhere. Uh, some of the advanced students will learn how to answer this if, uh, if a Christian tries to use it against them. So they kind of learn it as a defense mechanism. They try to explain it away. They try to allegorize it so it doesn't say what it says. And if it doesn't say what it says, then they can make it mean whatever they want it to mean. But no, it says what it says. And so if you can show this to some Jewish friends of yours, you can see the Messiah. You can see that the Messiah suffers so that we can have eternal life. And uh, we recognize that this is uh, what the whole chapter is centered on. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Very humbly, very small, the babe in the manger wrapped in the swaddling clothes. All the humility of this. He had no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Realize everything he was tested with. We don't know what what age he was when Joseph died, probably shortly after that age 12 episode where uh, it's the last time we see Joseph and he was silent then. Didn't say a word at that point. How sick was he on that trip to Jerusalem? We don't know. But from the age of 12 to the age of 30, somewhere in there, Jesus became the man of the house. And Jesus had a mother to care for and he had at least six siblings, probably more than that. We don't know how many girls, we just know it's plural girls. So at least two and at least four boys that are named. And Jesus is the oldest of those seven siblings and uh, had to get to work and had to provide, had to uh, deal with it. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And uh, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here's the the Jewish attitude against the Christ, that he was a blasphemer, that he was uh, rightly executed. They even put that in the Talmud. They, they, They mock him to this day as being the blasphemer that was rightly executed by the Sanhedrin. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was actually working, serving the Father on that cross because we were the sinners. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him by His scourgings 
we are healed. You want to be spiritually alive? The death of Christ is the only way to do it. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the substitutionary penal atonement. It is clear as anything. Sad the way it gets denied, the way that it gets denied. So all of us, each of us, that's important. All of us, that's our estate in Adam. We're all Adamically in the same boat. Every last one of us, we, we, we confirmed earlier, we got human beings in this room. We're all descended from Adam. That's all of us. And in Adam all die. That's our collective punishment. That's our collective lost estate. When Adam ate the fruit, God judged Adamic humanity with spiritual death. So all of us, but also each of us, each of us has turned to his own way. Each of us. Not only are we positionally in Adam, but each one of us are sinners by nature and practice. Each of us. So the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The sin of Adam was laid on Jesus and every personal sin you've ever committed or ever will commit is laid on Jesus Christ. He accepts every last bit of it. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. To whom the stroke was due. So not only do we have Adamic sin that's being dealt with, but we have Israel's curse under Mosaic law. The transgression of my people. That's Israel under the law. The transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So he handled Adam's original sin, redeemed Adamic humanity. He also handled Israel's Mosaic covenant breaking and is now prepared to give a new covenant to the nation of Israel. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will uh, see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What a joy. The joy set before him And it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame. See, Satan made a different bargain. Satan said, I'll give you all the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, thank you. He said, no. Uh, Scripture says, worship God and God only. Get behind me, Satan. He rejected that temptation totally. The father said, suffer. Become the substitutionary sacrifice redeem this lost and dying race. Then you'll have the kingdom in all its glory. (laughs) And which one of us would make such a bargain? None of us. None of us would even qualify. But he did. He said, yes, I will suffer. Okay? He's the only king that had to die to win. The only king that ever surrendered to win. He got his, you know, most kings become king when their father dies then they become king. Jesus had to die to become king. It's a glorious truth. All right. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was not a sinner, but he got labeled as one and the sin was assigned to him. Numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Even while he was there on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What a powerful blessing. And so God the Father is pleased to exalt Jesus Christ. Because he humbled him, he humbled himself, the Father will exalt him. How could he do anything else? Of course he's going to exalt him. Isn't that the promise? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. Well, 
Jesus did. What do you think the Father's going to do? He's going to exalt Jesus above every name that is named, not only this age, but the age to come. Jesus is the maximum infinite humility. He will receive the maximum infinite glorification. And grace bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. I like this. In Philippians 2 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed. Do you know what it means to bestow? That means you are extending grace. You are extending grace. As I'm bestowing this teaching this morning, no charge for any of it. It's freely given, freely received. It's a grace thing. To bestow is to grace give. The Father exalted Jesus Christ and grace bestowed upon Him. See, don't think that it's a merit. Don't think that Jesus deserved that exaltation. We want to say He deserved it. Because in our finite thinking, of course He deserved it. But He did what He did voluntarily. Not on on a wages basis. Not to earn and deserve eternal glory. He did what He did. He went to the cross in grace and the Father is exalting Him in grace. Let's understand that. Because if we humble ourselves for a little while and then we stomp our feet and say, all right, Lord, we deserve something for this now because I was, I was humble for a week or a month or, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> were we really humbling ourselves that whole time then if we were approaching it on a merit basis? If I was serving on a works basis, if I was serving thinking about what I'm going to earn for getting this, saying, ooh, Lord, I, know, I got some great treasures waiting for me now because I deserve them. No, I don't. I deserve the lake of fire. So my service is always a grace service. It has to be. Even Jesus, His exaltation is a grace bestowment. A grace bestowment. Charizomai. The, the noun charis is grace. The noun and the verb charizomai. Forgive, to freely grant. And we see it. We see it everywhere it's used. Charizomai. Understand the for this reason establishes the finished work of Christ on the cross as the causative basis for His exaltation from the Father. If He doesn't go to the cross, He doesn't get this exaltation. It's causative. The pinnacle of humility within the boundaries of time produces the pinnacle of exaltation forever beyond time. The pinnacle of humility within the boundaries of time. Done in grace produces the pinnacle of exaltation forever beyond time, given by grace. Jesus spoke parables to communicate this truth in Luke 14 and Luke 18, but His incarnation was the greatest application of it. The greatest application of it. The kenosis, the greatest example. And when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time. So who's going to be the maximum reward? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The humblest on this earth the humblest in their life. The humblest will be the greatest. The last will be first. That's how the Father designed designed it to be. Goodness. All right, Luke 14. Do we know these stories? Seven through eleven. Yeah, so this guy is having a a dinner party and all these invited guests and they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And he tells them, stop doing that. In fact, go to the end of the table. Go to the very end. Act like you're the least important person there. So when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. You're going to be really, really embarrassed when the master says, "Uh, that's not your seat. Can you get out of there, please? I want so-and-so to sit here. I'm going to honor so-and-so by sitting them here, and you're not it. So well, when you're invited, go recline to the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. What are you doing sitting way over there? No, 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 come sit over here. Be here at this. I want you at my right hand. You shouldn't be down there. Why are you sitting over there at the kitty table? Come over here with the adults. All right. <laughs> 
Luke 18. And uh, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And so these two guys go into the temple to pray, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector here. Wow, thank you, God, for making me so awesome. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I am such a great guy. Thanks, God. No. The other man, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the one who was justified, experientially justified when he walked out of that prayer meeting. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. God teaches this again and again. Jesus taught this and he lived it out. His incarnation was the greatest application. And Satan's the opposite. Satan's the creature that said he could become God. He's the greatest application of self-exaltation and divine consequences. So if you want to be an imitator of Satan, you've got the volitional capacity to do that. The Scripture uh, tells you that's, that's wrong. The name above every name in the angelic realm and the human realm, and it spans the ages to come the ages to come. So we know the church age is followed by the tribulation, is followed by the millennium, is followed by the new heavens and the new earth. For a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth, we have the fullness of time in which Jesus is the celebrated name above every name. That's going to be a lot of names. For a thousand generations, where are they going to come up with all those names? Jesus Christ's ultimate destiny is the maximum glorification that the Father can actualize. The greatest, the maximum glorification the Father can actualize. When you think about it, is it possible for Him to receive any more than what He's going to receive? No. Because if it was possible, the Father would have done that. The Father is actualizing the maximum glorification for His Son. And it's described here in the heavens, on the earth, under the earth. We get to go um, extra dimensional as we look at this. Uh, Heaven is usually viewed as up. Uh, Hell is usually viewed as down. All right. Those are just labels of convenience that help us to understand that heaven is a higher realm and that hell is a lower realm. But you can't dig down and, and make it to hell and you can't climb a ladder or go up to heaven. They're just convenient labels for us. They're, they're multi-dimensions. The dimension of heaven, the dimension of hell, beyond space and time. And there's glory. The Father's going to glorify the Son that the Father ultimately will be glorified. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. So the conclusion of the thousand generations and the conclusion of the fullness of time when the Son Himself delivers the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. The Son will acknowledge that the Father has glorified Him to the maximum. It's to the glory of the Father. Every knee, every tongue. You know, imagine, of course, we we do so willingly. We would love to do this. The unbelievers, the fallen angels, those who hate God, they're still going to confess that Jesus is Lord. What else can they say? There is no other conclusion they can come to as He throws them in the lake of fire. Yes, Lord. And, and away they go. All right. Well, there's more on that. But that's our review. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for Your truth. This, uh, we have been so blessed, Father. This flock has been so fed and richly blessed. We thank you for this Philippian series. We ask for your ongoing blessings as we continue to review uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And as we prepare to uh, move into the book of Colossians, Father, we just continue to anticipate that uh, you will continue to um, build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man. That by being well-nourished through balanced spiritual meals, Father, We are going to be stronger than ever before.
And we thank you for that, Father, because we anticipate testing like never before. So thank you for building us up and equipping us to deal with uh, the tests you've got coming down the road. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.